We have a guest uh, preaching for us this morning, and many of you know this man. This is Herr Dr. Jürgen von Hagen, uh, toilet cleaner extraordinaire, as I like to call him. And you'll have to ask him the story if you haven't heard it. Some of you don't know uh, Jürgen. He uh, lives in Germany in Bonn. He is the uh, professor there of economics. He's the vice president of the University of Bonn. He teaches here in Bloomington every year, about this time of year, at the Kelly School of Business. He's also uh, on the Pastors Council of Clearnote Fellowship, and he's the chairman of the board of directors of Athanasius College. We've known him for many, many years. He's very intimately connected with us and with the church. And uh, more than all of that, and more importantly than all of those things, he's a godly man. Uh, he is a shepherd. He has been a pastor. He is still a pastor and hopes to be uh, a pastor for years to come. And so open your hearts to him and receive him as he preaches to us. We're glad you're here. Good morning. I'm also very glad to be here. Fall is always a good season for me, not just because of the weather, but because I get to be here and get to be with you. Do you know what makes the God of the Bible unique? It must be something, right? Because the pastors keep telling you, believe in the God of the Bible, believe in Yahweh, don't believe in other gods. And I keep telling you that. So what makes that God unique? Well, the answer is forgiveness of sin. All other gods in this world fall into one of two categories. Either they are tyrants. They're angry against people. Man tries to appease them with sacrifices, with religious ceremonies, but it won't help. And then there is the other category that just doesn't care about men. That's the Greek gods. They sit somewhere on Mount Olympus and they play ball and have parties and do crazy stuff. And they don't care about men. They leave man alone with all his imperfections and sufferings. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is the only God who calls his people, comfort thee, comfort thee, my people, for the warfare between you and me is ended, and your iniquity is forgiven. And the joyful response of his people is happy, completely happy is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. The prophet Micah asks in admiration, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of his people? Mercy, the willingness to forgive sin, is what makes the God of the Bible unique. And don't you ever think that God is willing to forgive sin because he doesn't care about sin, because he takes sin lightly. No. 
God takes our sins so seriously that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, and let him die on the cross in painful agony so that we could have forgiveness. God takes sin extremely seriously, but he's willing to forgive. And wouldn't you want that God to be your father and his son your friend? So... How many of you have sinned this last week? Okay, most I can see. So what are you thinking about? Usually, we think of sin as something that we did, although we knew better. I did something and I knew it was wrong, it was against the word of God, but I did it anyway because I wanted to have it my way. And so in that thinking, sin is something that we can put our finger on and say, that was sin last week. And that's true. When we act against the word of God, knowing what we do, we sin. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Bailey preached a sermon about Levi, the tax collector, that man knew very well that he was sinning when he took more money from the people who came to his booth than what they really owed. He knew that was sin. And when Jesus met him, Jesus forgave him his sin. Jesus will forgive you sin that you knew was something that you did intentionally against the word of God. You, Jesus will forgive you if you receive him in the same way that Levi did. Gladly confessing and repenting your sin. But then there is more to sin. Much, much more. In the reading we had this morning from Leviticus, let me repeat the beginning of uh, Leviticus uh, 4 verse 2. It says, if a person, a person there is nefesh, you could say a soul. That's anybody, okay? That could be a man or a woman, a child, a slave, an Israelite, or a heathen, like we are, non-Israelites, okay? If a person sins unintentionally, aha, so there is intentional sin, and then there is unintentional sin. Unintentional sin, sin that we commit without thinking about it, without knowing that it's sin, without bad intentions. So what would be a few examples of unintentional sin? Well, number one, of course, the obvious one, I act against the law of God, because I don't know what the law is. So I tithe my income, I give 10%, because everybody tells me tithing, that means giving 10%, right? That's what we think. And then we finally look at the word of God, and it says 23 and a third percent. Okay? So that was unintentional sin. Or, I was negligent in my duties. My wife and I have a friend who is very poor, who suffers badly from a bone disease. And every few weeks she calls me and says, 
Jürgen, could you please pay for the visit to the doctor because she doesn't have the money to see the doctor. And this doctor is the only one who can relieve her pain. And so a couple of weeks ago, she called me and said, Jürgen, I need 500 bucks to get my car fixed. And driving is important for her because driving is the only way she get, can get out of the apartment and to work. And so I said, okay, I'll send the money. But I forgot to ask her, do you need money for the doctor? And so now she's probably in her apartment in pain and she doesn't want to call me again because she's ashamed of that. And the question is, did I really love her as myself? That's negligent sin, unintentional sin. Or maybe I thought I was doing something good, but I really did evil. That's the Apostle Paul before he became the Apostle. He persecuted the young church in Jerusalem, thinking that he was doing everything to the honor and glory of God, making himself the worst enemy of God. Or maybe you gave some money to a charity thinking that's a good deed to do and in reality part of that money goes to Planned Parenthood. Unintentional sin. Or maybe I failed just out of laziness. My son this summer ended up not taking his exams at the university and I lovingly forgave him instead of lovingly disciplining him, which is what God tells me to do. But it was so much easier to say, it's okay. Unintentional sin. And finally, everything in which I fall short of God's purpose and expectations in which he created me is sin. Everything in which you fall short of the purpose and expectations of God in which he created you is Sin. And that's the way you get up in the morning. It's the way you talk to your wife. It's the way you talk to your husband, to your children, your professors, your teachers. It is sin, and you don't even know about it. That's why it's called unintentional sin. And so that tells us we sin unintentionally all the time, constantly. Unintentional sin is pervasive in our lives, which is why David says in Psalm 51, I was born in sin. Quantitatively, unintentional sin is a far greater problem than intentional sin. Now let's go back to Leviticus 4. It says, if a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord... If his sin comes to his knowledge, he shall bring as his offering. And so now the situation has changed. He has sinned unintentionally, but now he realizes he did evil. So what happened? Well, perhaps he studied the word of God and he found the relevant passage. Or somebody else told him, his wife or his husband, her husband, <laughs> sorry, or he listened to a good sermon. That's a possibility. And so suddenly now he realizes, I did something really bad and God is angry with me and I deserve punishment for what I did. 
and he thinks, I wish I could go back and turn the clock back and do the right thing. But it's too late. I'm sure you've all been in situations like that where you thought, oh, I wish I could turn the clock back and think a bit more about what I was going to do. Or, I wish I could turn the clock back and think more about what I was going to say. But now, it's too late. Well, people, the good news in Leviticus is it's not too late to restore your peace with God. God, in his wisdom and love for his people, provided a way for them to obtain forgiveness. He told his people that the person who had sinned unintentionally should come and bring a sacrifice, an animal. The Hebrew word for sacrifice means something that you bring near to God. And so as often in the Hebrew, what's important is the movement and the direction. The sinner alienates himself from God. He moves away from God. The person who is going to obtain forgiveness draws near back to God and he comes with a gift in his hand, an animal. And God tells him to confess his sin, to put it on the animal by laying his hand on the head of the animal. And then the animal is killed and burned on the altar and thus bears the punishment that the sinner deserved. And so you see, God does not take unintentional sin lightly. He demands a life for it. But he's willing to accept the life of the animal as a substitute for the life of the sinner. And then we hear the great liberal, liberalizing phrase, and his sin shall be forgiven him. It's the conclusion of Leviticus 4. Now, Leviticus 4 is a very, very special chapter in the Old Testament because this is the first time in the Bible and it's the first time in the history of God's people where God spells out this great promise. Your sin will be forgiven. Sin, if it is confessed and sincerely repented and paid for with a life, will be forgiven. It is the first time that God offers to accept the life of an animal as a substitute for the life of the sinner. And so you ask yourself, this is such a prominent place in the Bible. What kind of sin does God deal with when, for the first time he talks about forgiveness? Unintentional sin. Unintentional sin because it is so pervasive in our lives that's why God addresses it as the first issue when he provides us with a way to make peace with him. We constantly sin unintentionally and therefore we constantly need this assurance. His sin will be forgiven him. Now, by now, perhaps you're asking yourself, why is the preacher talking about this old stuff? What do we have to do with a book that's over 3,000 years old? And what do we have to do with these bloody, yucky 
rituals that the Israelites engaged in. Aren't we modern people? Yeah, we are, but we still have to a lot to do with this because the Christian church has always read the book of Leviticus as an image of the life and the work of Jesus Christ. The things that we read in Leviticus point to the reality that we have in Jesus Christ. And so Leviticus helps us understand what Jesus did for us. That he gave his life as a substitute for your life in order to make forgiveness possible. God gave his son as the one perfect sacrifice that covers all the sins of all who believe in him. And so Leviticus 4 perfectly sets the stage for our text today, which comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. And as I read the word of God to you, would you please stand? Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. Now it happened on a certain day as he, Jesus, was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they sought to bring him in and lay him before him, that is, Jesus. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. So when he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your presence now, here in our midst. And Lord, we ask you to open our ears and our hearts, that we may hear and understand what you want to tell us this morning. And I ask you that you would bless my preaching, that it fulfills what you want to have done in this church. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the hearing of the healing of the paralytic in Capernaum, that's also a significant event in the New Testament. It's very early in 
the ministry of Jesus in Judea and Galilee. And it is significant because this is the first time in the New Testament that Jesus specifically addresses sin and says the liberating words. Your sin are forgiven you. They are. They're gone. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, by this time, Jesus had already become a famous preacher and healer. People came to hear his sermons. People came to be healed. They brought all sorts of sick people to him for him to heal them. Jesus had become a famous person who would cast out demons and, and uh, spirits. And so Jesus was drawing huge crowds of people who were curious, who wanted to see miracles, who wanted to see a demon leave a sick person, and who wanted to hear him preach the good news. And so it's no wonder that the religious leaders of his time would know about him and became aware of Jesus. The scribes who knew the law of Moses, whose job it was to teach the law and to interpret it to the common people, and then the Pharisees, people who were zealous for the law of God, people who said, the purpose of my life is to make sure that the law of God is honored in Israel. And so it was their responsibility, the scribes and the Pharisees, to watch over the ordinary people and make sure that they wouldn't fall into the trap of some heresy or some crazy preacher because then they had crazy preachers, just as no. Nothing new in the world. And so the scribes and the Pharisees come from all the towns of the country and from Jerusalem, and they want to check Jesus out. Now, on that day, Jesus was in a house in Capernaum, packed with a large crowd of people and a large number of religious officials. Jesus was preaching, and Luke says the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Them. All of them. And you ask yourself, well, were all these people sick? Did they all have some kind of infirmity that they all needed to be healed? No, of course not. But healing in the Bible has a much broader meaning than just to cure a physical illness. God often speaks of healing his people when he promises to restore them to the full joy and happiness of being his people. And that implies the remission of sins. So healing in that context, is the remission of sins. Psalm 41, David prays, Heal my soul, O Lord, for I have sinned against you. Well, what is he asking for if not forgiveness of his sins? Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives you all iniquities and heals all your diseases. Iniquity, sin, is a disease of the soul. And healing the soul is forgiveness of sins. And so Luke says the power of the Lord was there to heal them physically and spiritually. To deal with their sickness and to deal with their sins. Them. 
the crowd and the scribes and the Pharisees. While Jesus was preaching, four men came to the house carrying a paralytic on a stretcher. Now these people had heard about the famous preacher and they had heard that he's able to heal and so they took their friend who was completely paralyzed and put him on a stretcher and carried him to the house in order to lay him before Jesus and ask Jesus, would you please heal our friend? And so they come to the house but they can't get in because of the thickness of the crowd. And that says something about this crowd. You know, it says something about this crowd. It says all these people had no compassion with the man on the stretcher. Everyone there in the house wanted to be as close to the preacher as possible, to get as much as possible out of the encounter for himself. Let the paralytic care for himself. I want my part out of this sermon that Jesus is giving, and maybe I'll see even a miracle. A selfish crowd which wanted to be entertained. And so the four men left the house, and they took the stairs up to the housetop. This is a house in Palestine. They still have that flat roofs, a stair going up. That's additional living space. And so they get there. And they go right to the middle of the roof, and then they start scratching. And they take the tiles away, and they break a hole through the roof. Now, can you imagine? I'm preaching here. We need a little bit thicker crowd. <laughs> but that will come. And then suddenly you hear a scratching on the roof. Okay? <laughs> And after a while, dust starts falling down and debris. Well, Mike Bowles will say never, but I don't know. You know, and then suddenly you see a hand reaching through and then an arm and then light breaks through the hole and then a man coming down on a stretcher. And by now the whole crowd is completely silent and all eyes are on Jesus. What's he going to do? Oh, let's see what happens. And then the paralytic is lying on his bed down on the floor and his eyes are fixated on Jesus. And he looks at Jesus and he thinks, are you going to heal me? You're my last hope. And Jesus looks at him and he looks up at his four friends and sees the expression on their faces and the begging on in their eyes, Master, Master, I know you can heal him. Please do it. Please heal him. And then Jesus says something that nobody in the house expected. Man, your sins are forgiven you. And you're there, and you turn to Jesus and you say, um, Master, in all due respect, but you completely missed the point. <laughs> he didn't even think about his sin when he came to you. And you know what? That's exactly the point. That's exactly the point of this report. The people in that house had come for all sorts of reasons this morning. Some to be entertained by a sermon, some to be entertained by a miracle, some to have their physical defects healed, and some, even the scribes and the Pharisees, 
to catch Jesus making a religious mistake. You could have taken a poll that day at the entrance to the house and asked everybody, do you know why you're coming? And everybody would have had a good reason. I want this. I want that, I want this, I want the other thing. Everybody wanted to, say, to have something for himself. All good intentions, and they were all committing one and the same gross sin without knowing it. They were all coming into the presence of God, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one and only one who says, the Father in heaven and I are one. They're coming into the presence of the living God and they don't give him the glory and the honor and the worshiping that he deserves. Every single one of them wanted to get something for himself. And that's sin. It is sin to come into the presence of the living God with wrong and selfish motivations. It is sin to come into the presence of God and expects that he serves you instead you serving him. It is sin to come into the presence of God and expect to be entertained. It is sin to come to God and expect a service from him rather than confess your sin and ask him for forgiveness. And it's even sin to come into the presence of God and try to catch him in a theological mistake. And you know what? The question that this raises is, why do we come to church on Sunday mornings? To be entertained? To hear a good sermon that I can take something home with? Or because I like the music? Or because I think God will do something for me? Or because we want to worship and glorify the living God? Well, now you will say, but these people just went to see a famous preacher, a famous healer. And they didn't know that he was the son of God. They didn't know they were coming into the presence of the Lord. How can this be sin? And that's exactly the point. They were sinning grossly and unintentionally without knowing it. That house on that day is a house full of unintentional sinners. Just like this church now is a house full of unintentional sinners. And I include me. Don't make a mistake. I include myself. And so we see that Jesus, the very first time in his ministry that he addresses sin directly and promises forgiveness, what does he deal with? He deal, deals with unintentional sin. Just like God, the first time he gives the promise of Forgiveness in Leviticus deals with unintentional sin. You think that's just coincidence? No. It shows us the parallel between the book of Leviticus and the work and the life of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? 
That spans a period of 2,000 years. It's absolutely amazing. Later at Calvary, we hear Jesus pray from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. What greater sin could there be than to murder the Son of God? But they thought they were doing it for a good cause. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them their unintentional sin. And so this assures us that Jesus died on the cross for all our sins, the intentional ones and the unintentional ones. The ones you know about and the ones you don't know about. His blood is sufficient to wipe away all our sins. You know, when I was a young believer, happened to be in this town, when I was a young believer, I sometimes asked myself in fear, well, I've confessed the sins I know about, but what about all those I haven't confessed? The ones I've forgotten about, the ones I don't even know I did them. Wouldn't they, on the day of the last judgment, stand between me and Jesus? And the wonderful thing is, no. The mercy of God is not limited by the size of my memory. It's not limited by the size of your memory. Jesus died for all our sins. Now we have to look carefully at the text again in order not to make a mistake here. Does Jesus forgive everybody's unintentional sins? No. Jesus did not say, well, guys, from now on, unintentional sin isn't a problem for nobody. That's not what he said. He said, your sins are forgiven you. And he talks very specifically, very personally to that one paralytic. Now, why did he single out that man? Because something important happened while he was being let down from the roof and he was lying in front of Jesus and looking at Jesus. He looked at Jesus and he realized that he was looking at the Son of God. He looked at Jesus and he saw the perfect love of God, the perfect wisdom of God, the perfect knowledge of God, the perfect glory of God. He looked at Jesus and he realized that man knows everything that's in my heart, even the things I don't know. And in that moment, I bet, being paralyzed became completely unimportant to him. And he just looked at Jesus and he thought, please forgive me. How do I know that? Because that's what happens to everybody who looks at Jesus. Luke tells us just a, a few verses before how Peter went on a boat ride with Jesus and when he realizes this is the Son of God, he says to Jesus, Depart from me, Master, because I'm a sinful man. He looked at Jesus and he realized his own sinfulness. And that happens to everybody who looks at Jesus. And Jesus, seeing his face, said to him, Your sins are forgiven you. 
When we look at Jesus, we recognize our sin. And we don't bring sacrifices anymore because he is the perfect sacrifice. But we bring faith. The absolute conviction that he can heal our souls. And the absolute trust that what he did, his sacrifice, is completely sufficient for us to have forgiveness. That faith is not our merit. It is a gift from God. Luke says the power of God was present to heal, and that is not the power Jesus needed in order to heal. Because Jesus is the Son of God, he can always heal if he wants to. It is the power of God that causes the paralytic to look at Jesus Christ. It is the power of God that makes him realize this is the Son of God and I'm a sinner. It is the power of God that puts faith into that man's heart so that he can really trust Jesus Christ. And Luke says, Jesus preached the gospel and the power of God was there and people, that's what we believe when we're here. Otherwise, what we're doing here is a waste of time. We preach the gospel because we're sure that God's power is there to heal. Now, what about the other people in that house to that day? They also looked at Jesus, but they didn't look at him in faith. And what Luke says about the scribes and the Pharisees is very telling. As soon as Jesus had said, your sins are forgiven you, they start asking questions. Isn't that blasphemy? Wait a minute, who can forgive sins but God alone? And of course, they are right. Only God can forgive sins. And so the fact that Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you, made it very clear he is the Son of God. And they should have worshipped him and glorified him. But instead, instead, they begin to reason in their hearts, Luke says. And in the Bible, that's a way of saying they started talking to themselves. And that is sin. That is sin because we should always turn to God. If you have a question about Jesus Christ, you shouldn't ask yourself. You should ask God, and he will give you the proper answer. Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And when David once lost trust in God's providence for him in 1 Samuel 27, it says, then David said to his heart, I will perish. Okay? Speaking to your heart is a way of turning away from God. And Jesus' criticism against the scribes and the Pharisees is not that they doubt and say, isn't this blasphemy? Why do you reason in your hearts? Why don't you ask me that question? It's the turning away from God that prevents them from being, being healed that day. But Jesus has mercy and patience with them. And so he lets the paralytic rise and walk home so that the scribes and the Pharisees see 
He is really the Son of God. You know, the visible healing is the proof of the invisible one. The man stands up and walks. That's proof that his sins are forgiven. And so the story ends with a happy ending. They all glorified God. The man who can now walk, his friends, the crowd, the scribes and the Pharisees, they all glorify God. So what are we to take away from this report? Five points. Number one, in Jesus we have forgiveness for all our sins. The intentional ones and the unintentional ones. The love and mercy of God in Jesus Christ is unlimited if we believe in Jesus Christ. It's not too late. Isn't that wonderful? Number two, God wants you and me to recognize our unintentional sins. This is why God gives us his word to study, to read. This is why God gives you a church so you can listen at the sermon and have God's word explained. God wants us to grow spiritually, and that doesn't mean to learn as many verses from the Bible as possible. It means to recognize the sin in your life more and more and more. Not so that you feel more and more ashamed and oppressed, but so that you realize more and more how desperately you need Jesus Christ and how dependent we are on the blood of our Savior. Number three, God wants us, you and me, to look at his son, Jesus Christ. For when we look at him, we see God's perfect love and grace. When you look at Jesus Christ, you realize who you are and who he is. Calvin once said that you cannot understand yourself unless you look at God. And you cannot understand God unless you look at yourself. We need to look at Christ. And the faith that God puts in your heart can grow and can make you trust in him alone. So please, do not reason in your hearts. If you have questions about Jesus, about your need for Jesus, ask people in this church, the elders, pastors, even me. Look at Jesus Christ by reading the Bible and by looking at and becoming involved with his church because the church is the body of Christ. And when you look at the church, you look at Jesus. Number four, sin paralyzes us. Unintentional sin paralyzes us. It makes us unable to get up and walk and go to God. It weighs us down so that we lie on the ground completely helpless. We must understand that Jesus can heal our paralysis. And we must learn to trust people to carry us to Jesus Christ. It's the purpose of the church. And if you're here this morning and you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ... Trust the people here and let yourself be carried 
to Jesus. Now, we all have a tendency to say, no, 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 that's embarrassing. I don't want to lie on a stretcher. I don't want other people to carry me. I can get up myself and walk there. No, you can't. Just admit that you need help. And if you're here this morning and you have given your life to Jesus Christ, then take the four friends of that paralytic man as your example. I bet you know people who are paralyzed in their sins. Of course you know people who are completely paralyzed, completely unable to move even a little finger spiritually. Why don't you take a couple of friends and put them on a stretcher and bring them here? Why don't you go up there and dig a hole into the roof if necessary? Jesus loves tile-breaking faith. And the church needs people with tile-breaking faith. And your friend who is paralyzed in his sin needs you to come and carry him to Christ. And number five, forgiveness of sin is what makes God unique. Forgiveness of sin is what makes the God of the Bible unique. Forgiveness of sin against them is what makes Christians unique. It's the great treasure of the church of Jesus Christ that we are people, hopefully, who learn to forgive each other. And if you learn to forgive others, your wife, your husband, your children, your parents, your professors, your pastors, your small group leaders, your colleagues, if you learn to forgive them the sins that they do against you, even the unintentional sins, I promise you, you'll be pretty unique. People will look at you and say, whoa, that's an unusual person. And Jesus will look at you and he'll say even more. He'll say, that's a person I love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you came to this world and that you are the perfect sacrifice that we need to have forgiveness for all our sins with our Father in heaven. Lord, we cannot even begin to understand the depth and the height and the greatness of your love and your mercy for us. We can only look at you and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. And Lord, this morning I ask you that you help us grow spiritually. That you help us understand your word ever more. That we recognize our sin and we learn to bring our lives under your rule evermore for your joy and your glory. Amen.